Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So, propaganda, it dominates everything we see, everything we touch. We know that we are just awash in this constant stream of left-wing propaganda. However, we usually don't think about what that means, what the implications are for the other side of the aisle. Should the right be using propaganda? If so, how should they be thinking about it? How should it be implemented? Somebody joining me today, uh, Kryptos, he has a great substack, one of the better up-and-coming substacks, often mining the thought of people like Jacques Ellul and uh, Car uh, Carl Schmidt. Uh, Kryptos, thanks for joining me, man. It's a pleasure and uh, really looking forward to, um, to talking about this subject. It's one that's um, close to my heart. Yeah, like I said, you wrote a piece on this and I thought it was really good and it had some some good insights and I wanted to expand that into a larger discussion because I think that this is an issue that very few people, a lot of people recognize as a problem. They, of course, say, oh, look, the propaganda coming out of the schools, the propaganda coming out of the media, but they just think of this as some kind of you know infringement on an otherwise neutral process or space. Uh, and so I think you did a great job of breaking down why that's not the case and how we should think about it. So guys, we're going to dive into all that in just a second. Before we do, let's hear from our sponsor. Universities today aren't just neglecting real education. They're actively undermining it. And we can't let them get away with it. America was made for an educated and engaged citizenry. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. They have fellowships at some of the nation's top conservative publications like National Review, The American Conservative, and The College Thinker. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next great generation of college professors. Through ISI, you can work with conservative thinkers who are making a difference. Thinkers like Chris Rufo, who currently has an ISI researcher helping him with his book. But perhaps most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that can help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at their various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, go to isi.org. That's isi.org. All right. So, Kryptos, I think the first thing that we should do before we get into how we should use things, how we should address this, is first, we need a good definition of propaganda because I used to be a public school teacher, um, which, you know, is, is most certainly its own form of propaganda transmission. Uh, and I taught a civics class in which you would teach the definition of propaganda. And what we told the students is that propaganda is bias or misleading information. But of course, that implies that there is some form of unbiased information, some form of, of neutral information that we should be transmitting. That's the job of everyone to transmit if you're in the media or if you're a teacher or something like that. And, and and if you're not doing that, then you're you're bringing this propaganda, this bias in. But when we're talking about the concept of propaganda, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, the first thing that that people have to kind of leave behind when you start talking about propaganda is that it really isn't about truth and lies. And this is the 
this is where a lot of people on the right um, go off, you know, go go off track, because they they see stuff coming out in the mainstream media, they see stuff coming out in the news, coming out through pressers, politicians talking about it, and they categorize it, you know, the lies of the mainstream media, right? And so there there is this sense, okay, so it's got to be bad because it's a lie, right? Um, and then what we need to do to counter that is then speak the truth to the lie. And so if we give the truth, that will counter their lie. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of propaganda. And I, the, the best definition that I have is, is from Jacques Ellul's um, book, Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes. And Ellul argues that Propaganda, now this is, I'll just read the definition. Propaganda is a set of methods employed by an organized group that wants to bring about the active or passive participation in actions of a mass of individuals psychologically unified through psychological manipulations. And then further, propaganda does not aim to elevate man to, but to make him serve. So there's a number of components there. One is that you have people who are like mass man. So in other words, they've, they've been broken out of all of the groups and in institutions that used to bind them and give them meaning and in some sense protect them from the propagandist. Um, so that's a sort of deracinated person. Um, but then they're rebound together by the propagandist in these sort of mass narratives, but not so much to change their thinking but to get them to act the way the propagandist wants them to act. So either actively or passively, the propagandist is trying to shape not so much their thoughts, but their actions. So if they can get them to do what they want them to do, their, their thoughts will follow in line with the propagandists. So take, for example, you start early with school kids, right? So the school kids pretend to do protests or activism. Well, the, the, the content of the activism is really irrelevant. It's getting the kids to pretend to be active, like that they are protesting something. And then later on when they're in their 20s, because they've already been an activist in, you know, from a young age, you can then fill them with content, right? And you can, that's when you can then, it, it becomes easy because they've already brought into the idea that they're an activist and that being an activist is good. And so then you can just, um, give them the activist narrative that then sort of completes the the action that they've already started with. And an action could be as simple as something as like doing nothing or like hating you when I, the, the person I want you to hate, that type of thing. That's that's great because there's there's a couple of things in there I want to focus on. We're going to spend time just on the definition because I, I, that, that's got a couple of different parts <laughs> that I think are really critical. So the first thing is again, as you said, most people think of propaganda as mind control, which isn't entirely wrong. But as you're pointing out, it's it's creating the space for the action. If you can create the form for the person, then it can later be filled with content. And I think that's particularly important when people don't understand the dynamic that is laid out for them in the political realm. Uh, they don't understand that the parts that they are playing have already been created and that the content, the reason that it feels so often, for instance, that the right is reacting 
to whatever the left is putting out is that the left has the, that the rights form has already been created the way and actions and, and the way it's going to look at things has already been molded by propaganda mm-hmm. so that by the time the content pours out of the content mill it simply flows into the form that was already created for them by the left yeah and and it's not it, it, it in some sense goes deeper than this because we generally tend to think of it as just you know politicians the news media mm-hmm. but Alul goes and argues that the whole of technological society requires propaganda to run you know like why do you get up and go to work five days of the week and work eight hours and try to be productive you know you never stop to think about it right but those types of things are maintained by constant propaganda so everything you do in our society and this is what the the why Alul's book propaganda is so frightening it's because the depths that he bores down to you realize very very quickly as you go through that book that none of your thoughts are your own that just about every way that you perceive reality has been dictated for you by the propagandist and that the reason why you think the way you do is because you already act in line with the way the propagandist wants to to get you to act. So in a sense, you become a free market person because you get up and go to work every day, five days a week. And you think that getting up and working hard and that, you know, the Protestant work ethic is a great thing because that's what you're already doing. So you have this whole complex of ideas that you've already sort of since been like the boar or not the Borg, like the matrix, you've been born into it, right? You're a slave and you've been born into it. And part of that is just formed for you with constant propaganda. Um, from advertising to to everything. So, you know, you go out and buy the, the shirt that they want you to buy. Well, you're a consumer. So you justify consumer policies, right? So we need cheap goods and all. So all the way down the line. And this these sort of same things then work in the political realm as well, too. So the second thing I really wanted to get into that you, you said there that I think requires some expanding on is that the derationation <laughs> is is key because those institutions those social bonds those other social spheres that pre-existed the mass man protected you from propaganda so propaganda is a is a consequence of scaling civilization can you talk more about why that deracination is so key and why those prior social bonds would have protected you from this propaganda it's it's a funny thing, and it, it's hard to kind of convey. You more or less have to state it and almost accept it. But in you know, part of as the way our society went um, is that you know we used to have these tight knit communities that were in some ways very suffocating. Right? You were told what your job was going to be, who you were going to marry, who you were going to friends were going to be, where you were going to eat, where you were going to go to church, where you were going to eat lunch after church on Sunday. All of these types of things are dictated for you by the community, right? Your moral behaviors are are all sort of dictated in the community. So part of the 20th century was sort of the liberal shaking off of all of these community bonds. So you could have personal choice, individual choice. But what people didn't realize that is if your community isn't sort of dictating your life that way and, and dictating many of your choices, once you shake off the bonds of community, what ends up happening is that there's nothing protecting you from the, the state becomes the community for you. Mm. So what happens is then you, the, the state provides all the things that the, that the community used to. And the funny thing is, is that when you're in a community, you actually have 
more room to think for yourself than you do when there's no community protecting you from the propagandist. And in other words, in a sense, your thoughts are more your own in a community, even though the community feels more suffocating. So you get into the sort of the big faceless city with, you know, you can be anything you want, you can do anything you want, you feel free, but now you're really at the mercy of the propagandist because you're alone, you're isolated. And the propagandist can seize you and he can give you that sense of belonging. Well, you you buy the right clothes. Now you belong to a group. You you belong to the political party, this cause, and all of these things. Then he, the propagandist, then gives you your identity. So you participate in all these things, and then by participating in them, the propagandist is able to seize you and manipulate you in a way that your local community never could, even though they felt more suffocating. Yeah, I think that's really key for people. We we liked. I think we recognize this to some degree, right? You can see people today, they look at, oh, children that are emancipated from their parents, uh, they don't they don't become free because they're you know, they're they're still molded by the in- institutions, the schools, the media, these things. They become you know more able to be, you know, there's there's predatory ideologies, trans ideologies, all the all these other ideologies that are preying on the children and they simply become subject to those instead of the beliefs of their parents. But we think that kind of magically goes away once we reach some, some certain age where then we become individuals who are completely able to define our own reality and our own preferences and these things. But what you're saying is without those institutions, that's not something that just falls away from children that, you know, in childhood and you become an adult and all of a sudden you can simply make choices for your own, that that level of influence continues if you do not have communities, you know, uh, faith, family, these things that would otherwise push back, those uh, influencers are going to continue to work on you and propaganda becomes more and more effective when you have fewer and fewer community influences to work against it. Well, the the case in point, it's exactly the case in point when you look at um, what happened during COVID, who were, who was, which group was most likely to resist COVID mandates? Well, it was tight-knit church communities. Right. So you think all oh, these tight knit church communities where they tell you how to believe and you can't be free. And you know what I mean? And they impose their morals on you, blah, 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 blah. Right. But these were the groups that in spite of their insularity and their their seemingly backwardness, they were the ones who were able to think for themselves. And because they were part of a community and this community allows them the space, the separation, um, they, because they have these bonds the state doesn't fill that need for them. Their identity is not given to them by the propaganda. They find their identity in the community. And so they were able to step back and say, no, I'm not buying it, right? And people looked at them and like, what do you mean you're not buying them? You know, keep everybody safe, do all, you know what I mean? You have to get the jab, wear the mask, you have to do the right, what's right. And they just said, no, not really, I don't buy it. And, and, and everybody was kind of dumbfounded, right? And so again, the propaganda machine kicks in and they're demonized. So those that are already propagandized are then directed to, to hate these groups and to make them feel backwards because again, that's what the propagandist does, right? Um, and, and so, but these groups largely remained immune to the whole thing. So I, I think it's it's very important for people to understand that a, a key thing about propaganda, especially in kind of a, its, its Western context, is that it 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 relies on us thinking that we've broken away from the need for collectivity, right? We we often 
we often phrase this as the idea between you know collectivists and individualists this is the battle but the truth is that the 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 this large amount of people who think they're going to be completely uh, autonomous individuals actually end up being more uh, or easier prey for propaganda. They end up simply being compelled to comply with a more overbearing, larger collectivity as where the individual communities are able to operate and resist against these things because they have more particular collectivities that allow them to put things uh, above the the good of that the propagandist is compelling them toward. Yes, and and um, because you no longer have an identity, there there you know th this idea that you as a person are able to shape your own identity is just you know um, that you're able to provide your own meaning is is really really dangerous. You kind of create the burden for. Um, for shaping everything around you. Like, you know, what does everything mean? What is the world, you know, what's my purpose in life? What's the, what, you know, what's, what should I do? Who am I, right? It used to be that that was all given to you um, by your environment and you didn't have to make those choices. So what ends up happening is to relieve yourself of the psychic anxiety of having to find yourself, discover who you are, um, the propaganda steps in and the propagandist provides that for you, the role that the community used to, right? Mm. Um, and so now, but because of this, you feel emancipated. And that's one of the things the propagandist does is he continues to make you feel emancipated. But now he is directing your sense of belonging, what you do, what you think, what your actions are. And so it's, it's in a sense very subtle, um, but you are part of the masses, you are not an individual, but yet you're made to feel like an individual, and yet your actions are directed because you just can't deal with the anxiety of having to understand and sort out and give meaning to the whole of life. And so the propaganda just sort of steps in and provides it for you. Right. Absolutely. All right. So we spend a good amount of time on understanding what propaganda is, but I think that's really critical because so many people who engage in the conversation don't take the time to think about that. And I think that's going to lay really good groundwork for then how we should think about the possible deployment of propaganda on our side, on the right conservatives, however you want to think about it. But before we dive into that, guys, let's go ahead and hear about the blind for years. Hollywood's been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended towards the anti-hero, a flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, The True Story of the Robertson Family is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. And you'll see there's always hope. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, triumphs, and values that shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to stream it here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here rather than Apple or Amazon, we wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to do that. Make sure to act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robinson story on Blaze TV. You can buy it today at blazetv.com the blind for nineteen ninety nine. That's blazetv.com slash the blind. All right. So I think we've got a better grasp on kind of how propaganda works, what it is. 
So now the question that you kind of posed in your piece was how the right should approach it, because I think the story was, you know, that you had posted something on on your Twitter and a lot of people were saying, well, that's not exactly something that Justin Trudeau said. And so, you know, it's it's propaganda, it's manipulation. And you were addressing this issue of, well, how should the right feel about that? Like, should are we compelled to you know, to never use this technique? So I guess the, the first question is, is propaganda necessary? Can't we just tell the truth, bring the facts and logic and let that defeat the lies, right? Is, isn't that the way that it's been framed by conservatives? Isn't that the way to approach the space? Yeah, so there, there's a there's a, a number of different pieces here, right? So, the the one piece is is that you know the first of all, well, it wasn't factual, right? And so we we operate out of a you know a 17th century idea of um, um what oh, I'm drawing drawing a bike, um where you're trying to like factual verifiable truth. Right. And so everything that is true, that sort of Kantian thing and um, where, you know, if you can't verify it, it, you know, it's it, it's it, it lacks the kind of of, of you know, epistemological weight. That something can be verified. Right. So um, we tend to want to grasp hold of this idea of of the fact. Right. So, you know, the, if, if it's not factual, it must be bad. Right. Well, the problem is, is that this this seventeenth century Enlightenment idea um, replaces an older idea of of narrative and story, of storytelling and narrative. This is one of the things that, like, say, for example, that uh, Tolkien um, grabbed a hold of when you you the hobbits are always masters of lore, masters of the stories, right? And the the real truth is found in the stories. Well, stories only become a problem in the modern era when you can record everything and everything can kind of have a kind of an exactitude. And so we tend to think that this exactitude is what is most important. Whereas older peoples, the, the ancients, so to speak, um, understood that the, the, the important things was the essence, the meaning of, of the event itself. So you often go into ancient texts and you'll have, you know, speeches by famous people. And you know that the speech was written. This is not exactly what he said, mm. but in a sense, it carries the essence of what he said, right? So then I use this contrast with um, the, the Robert Stanfield, right? Um, him catching that football awkwardly on the on the the airstrip, right? So you have a slice of true reality that then you take this quote unquote fact and you elevate it to conscious, and that's really what happens, right? Is that you take this 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 slice of reality and you elevate it to consciousness, and then um, that consciousness quote unquote becomes a truth, and then you can frame it in a narrative, right? So we tend to do this ourselves all the time with our own. If you apprehend if basically if if you could not filter out reality you would go crazy so we tend to fixate on things you know somebody's talking to you and like i didn't even sorry i didn't hear you i was paying attention to something else right i mean those sound is there that that reality is there the sounds docking out bank bouncing off you the person is talking to you but you don't hear it because you're focused on something else right and so what happens with with media is that the power of the media and so forth is to choose which slices of reality are focused on, 
And then that piece of reality gets focused on and it gets elevated. So let's take, for example, a common piece is, is um, white policeman shoots a black man, right? So what happens in if you only fixate on those events, no other events, not black on black crime, not black officers shooting white officers, not black officers shooting black officers, not white officers shooting white officers, um, not white sh whites shooting whites in crime. And not, but that the only piece of, of violence that you get is white cop, black criminal, right? Or black, maybe not even criminal, just, and, and, um, and then you elevate that and then you frame that with a narrative that, well, the cops are only doing with that because they're racist. And you say, well, he's not racist. No, no, no. He just, he's racist, but he doesn't know that he's racist. He has a systemic implied bias in his actions. He obviously killed him because of his systemic, deep-seated racism that he's not even aware of. Now you've got a narrative, right? So this gets elevated to consciousness. Now, what happens is, is that we come along and think, well, that's a lie. It's not really a lie. It is truth. You know, just like that Robert Stanfield bobbling the football. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, you know, and maybe some policemen have implicit biases. Maybe they don't. But you citing crime stats and all these other things, they don't mean anything because they're not facts because nobody notices them. They're not elevated to consciousness. And this is, I think, the thing that people struggle with is the combination of these two ideas of the 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 sort of recording version of history, that it has to be the exact words that somebody said and not necessarily getting at sort of the essence of who this person is and what he means. And then the other thing that we misunderstand is this idea that not all of reality can be considered a fact. And this is one of the things that Alul talks about is that only those slices of reality that are elevated to public consciousness and then given framing in the public consciousness um, become facts. Everything else is just, it's nothing. Yeah, th this so, is really, this is really critical because we are, like you said, we are swimming in facts. Like, and, and be, we are, have all of this stuff technically now available, especially through the internet. In theory, we can drop any kind of fact we want at any moment. It, we, there, there's just this massive wave of information that we could interact with. However, there's simply no way that we can do that. And, and the average person, like you said, they would go insane if they tried to absorb and process and understand those things. And so it's the, it's the focusing of the different organizations that bring these things into reality for most people. We like to think of ourselves as rational creatures that are going to evaluate every bit of information that we come into contact with. But that's just not how humans work. We're, we're fundamentally narrative creatures. We need these facts contextualized into a narrative for us to have any understanding of them. And so one of the amazing things that propagandists have the ability to do is focus on those particular features. So propaganda is not a lie. It doesn't need to be a lie. It could be a lie. There are, of course, people lying through these things, but it doesn't have to be. It can be the elevation of particular truths for particular reasons to set a narrative. And we, I think we should all understand that by now when it comes to something like statistics, right? There are so many statistics out there. There's an overwhelming wave of statistics pouring over us in every situation. And the truth is 
that you can make statistics say pretty much anything you want by simply focusing on the right set of data. And so we constantly see these things manipulated because people simply bring a particular thing that could be true if you focus on exactly the right situation, exactly the right data set, exactly the right numbers, exactly the right situation. But that does not actually reflect reality. Reality might be better served by a holistic understanding that is more narrative in nature. Yeah. And, and so the thing, the thing that sort of the next step to this, and this is one of the things that people really struggle with, is that it's, it's kind of when you get into sort of propaganda warfare, um, that choosing the ground upon which you fight is, is the decisive thing, right? So the, the propagandists, the, and this is the power of the mainstream media, by choosing which reality will be focused on, which stuff gets elevated to consciousness, and then also the power of, of giving it a framing, a story, a narrative, by choosing which narratives are important, um, then um, you choose the, the ground on which it's fight. So if you as a conservative react to something in the mainstream media, what you are doing is saying, this is the story over which we must fight. Right. So what you've done without realizing it is you have validated the importance of the mainstream media narrative. Mm -hmm. And you think to yourself, well, then do we say nothing? Well, no, it leaves you in a catch 22. Right. It's the same thing of two with like grooming in the school. Right. It's it's in some ways it distracts your energy from toppling the regime. But can you really justifiably allow the groomers to continue to groom your children? Well, no. So you have to fight this side battle. And as a result, the, the regime remains in place. And so really the important thing is being in a position to dictate the terms of the narrative. So if any time that you can dictate the terms of the narrative, this is a good thing, right? So take, for example, that, that Justin Trudeau quote, right? So it got 100,000 views and over 1,000 likes, right? And the purpose of it, you can look in the feed, people reacted to it. There's basically two reactions. One is, is the correct reaction in a sense, like, isn't Justin Trudeau an awful person, right? And the other reaction was, well, that's a completely fake quote, or it's it's made up, it's not verifiable. Like, okay, yeah, it was said at a fundraiser, but nobody can verify that. You're damaging us by doing it. And I'm like, okay, so I looked at it. I don't really care because what you're talking about is my quote and you're giving it more attention. And the mainstream media functions in much the same way. They don't care that you're giving your quotes because they're dictating the terms of the discussion. And this is a thing that a lot of conservatives really, really struggle with, right? So when somebody like Chris Rufo is able to flip the tables on it and is able to make, for example, the, you know, all teachers are groomers, a real thing and and the regime is on a back foot and you would like to say you know you get the regime starting to do like well conservatives are the real groomers you know that it's a win because basically he made the regime look like what conservatives look like normally yeah it, it's rufo i think is very good at this and he's acknowledged this uh explicitly you know there people have attacked him the mainstream media has attacked him he's he's controlling language he's manipulating language he's a propagandist and he's like yes like I, you know, he, he, he's, exactly. he said this, uh, you know, he said this explicitly, I'm going to change the way that we talk about things. I am going to change the way that we have a discussion about a topic. Uh, you know, we, uh, and a, a lot of people, you know, on the right say, oh, he doesn't, he's not based enough or he doesn't like whatever. This guy understands the problem 
in a way that you don't. And he scraps in a way that, that, that you don't. And that is way more important fundamentally changing the the battlefield there's a reason that they hate this guy and this this is something that i try to explain to people when, when they ask me you know why is you know why does your style of things go differently why does it do well and my answer is always is i'm stepping out of the frame it, it's it's simply a we we are going to set the way that we look at this rather than simply to then reacting to what comes out and so when chris rufo goes in there and he sets a narrative to which the the mainstream media must set step into the frame of that narrative and discuss it that is a win and and that is not him lying there's nothing wrong about what he's saying about say what the schools were doing to children there's there's factual truth in what he is saying there but the way that it was framed specifically forced the discussion onto his terms and understanding that that is as if not more important than the verifiability of any given fact inside that frame is really, really critical for people to understand. In a sense of like, to everybody knows that all teachers are not groomers. You know right. I mean, even if the curriculum demands, like in Canada here, the curriculum pretty much, I know a couple of teachers who have stepped away from teaching because they're just so tired of, of being forced into teaching along these lines or lose their job. So this, I'm just going to do something else. Right. But you know, not all teachers are groomers, but once you begin to realize the totality of it to say, you know, all teachers are groomers. Um, okay. Yeah. It's not a verifiable fact, but it gives the essence of what's happening in the school. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there is this sense that it, it captures the truth of what is happening. So, and this is really, I think the people, the, the, the reason why sort of enlightenment ideas of the truth are, are so dangerous is because the ancients understood this far better than we do, that stories have a way of revealing the truth of things in ways that, you know, bland, scientific, verifiable, accurate reporting does not. You well, know? this... This reminds me of um, I don't know if you ever listened to the uh, the debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris on the d definition of truth, um, <laughs> but but they spent three hours going back and forth, and and basically Peterson is just trying to convey this very simple thing to Harris, you know, which is yeah, I get that like maybe you're not sure that Jonas spent time in the belly of a literal whale somewhere. But that story is way more true than some random statistic you have acquired. And, and, and that was just something he could not grasp. He could, could not grasp that fact. And so I think a large amount of like the success of Jordan Peterson was simply explaining the very basic thing you're saying, which is there is far more truth contained in a narrative and a story than there is in some manipulatable, propagandized table of facts somewhere. Well, and, and like you get to the common one, right? And this is where a lot of Christians who were embracing the ethos of the time, this idea of, you know, because we tend to want to embrace the truth, right? So this, somehow this, this idea of, of scientific truth, it seems very appealing, right? But when you look at something like, you know, the first chapter of Genesis, any idiot can look at you and tell you that that's not a videotape of how the world started. Mm -hmm. So what's going on there, right? Well, what's going on there is it's it's is it's explaining why the world is the way the world is in a sense it's giving you the meaning of the world 
right? It's revealing the essence of what the world is. And, you know, it was created on purpose by God with order. And then it was corrupted later by human beings. Well, this is a fundamental story that answers basic questions of why are things the way they are, right? Um, and then, you know, the counterexample I gave is, well, okay, if you reject God in that story, then you have to come up with your own origin story, which is basically um, people glommed onto this, uh, you know, Darwin's thesis and made um, Darwin's thesis into sort of a, a cosmological version of, of human progress, but expanded over the entire length of the universe to try to explain why we're here and, and what it means. So now you have two competing narratives and you really have to see it this way because evolution narrative is no more verifiable than the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And once you realize that it's very liberating, right? Because now you're looking at, okay, which story now gets at the essence of, of the world around me far better, right? And I'm frankly, the, the version of Genesis is just far more appealing. So yeah, God created the world in six days and that's the story. And I'm okay with that. I don't have to go beyond that. So I think a lot of people are going to say, all right, well, maybe we can tell the truth in propaganda. Maybe. Okay. So I'm selecting which important part of the truth to amplify. I can, I can get, I guess I can get on board with that, but why do I need to scale this up to propaganda? What, what about the modern world makes propaganda necessary? Can't I just tell the truth? Can't I just communicate the stories we've always communicated inside my community what, what what's what's the, the mechanical necessity of propaganda in kind of our modern political situation well it, it it comes down to like let's take two societies right and both are emerging out of you know say a, a pre-modern pre-technological space and and one is maybe a little bit ahead of the other and they develop factories and assembly lines and off of these assembly lines are rolling tanks right? Well, you're looking over at your neighbor and all of a sudden you're looking very, very nervous. These tanks look very dangerous. And you may think to yourself, tanks are objectively bad. Assembly lines are not good for human flourishing. And the whole thing is just really distasteful. But there's still the fact of the tanks that you have to deal with, right? And so either you've got to be producing your own tanks or you've got to find a way to um, disable and neuter their tanks, right? So the tank problem becomes a real issue. And this is what I think a lot of people fail to realize in the modern era is that what happens in the technological world is that our political choices become vastly, vastly reduced. And mm -hmm. so in a world in which everything is shaped by propaganda, okay, you can try to, to, to go a different thing. And this is one of the reasons why I advocate the building of, of parallel polity communities. Because part of the way that you resist the, the sense the tank that is propaganda is by creating tight-knit communities again, intentionally. And it can be done, but it just takes time. But in the meantime, you have a war to fight. And this war, unfortunately, you're going to have to build some tanks. You're going to have to learn how to do propaganda. And, and you may not like it, and it may make you feel unclean and dirty to do so, but you need to control the narrative because um, if you don't, somebody else will. So I think that explains the Machiavellian necessity of propaganda, <laughs> yes. which is important. Yeah, I'm, I'm somebody who works in Machiavellian political theory. I, I'm not discounting that at all. But I think the immediate answer you're going to get for people uh, is, OK, but what if we're, you know, we're Christians, right? So we have yeah. 
to hold ourselves to a higher standard. I get why, you know, some, uh, you know, heartless, soulless guy can just say, well, this is mechanically necessary. Therefore I do this, but, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm compelled to not bear false witness. So how, how as a Christian should I look at the deployment of propaganda? Is it, isn't that a problem? It is. And, and this is, this is the problem I think of, of the political in general. And, um, I'm of the mind that the political is one of those, I mean, there will always be social organization. You know, this is that contrast between a world with sin and evil and a world without sin and evil. Well, we live in a world with sin and evil, which means that we have to deal with the reality of the world that is even as Christians. So yeah, we'd like to have a world in which everybody always tells the truth all the time, but unfortunately that's not the world that we live in. So even in just like practical things from the point of view, like if you have a small Christian state and you might think to yourself, we're going to do in our Christian state, we're going to do things the right way, right? But unfortunately, um, are you going to then declare all of the truths that you have to, you know, you have to keep some secrets. So in a certain sense, you can't tell everybody everything, which means in some sense, even in your small little Christian community, like a small city state, Christian city state, you built it. So at a certain level, as a, as a political leader, you have to lie to your own people. You have to lie to your neighbors. Um, you probably want to spy on your neighbors, which means that you're going to be encouraging other people to not only the, to deceive um, the, the, the neighbors, but also to betray them, right? So there's a certain sense where politics in a, in a sinful world is an ugly business. And, and in a sense, Tolkien was right that to grab the ring of power is inherently corrupted. Now, there's a certain segment of Christians who said, well, Christians want have nothing to do with politics. And I always argue that, okay, that, that can be an option. But what happens, let's say your evangelistic efforts are really, really successful. And now you become majoritarian. Let's say you're 75% of the population. So because you find politics distasteful, you're going to allow yourself to be ruled by the 25% that are non-Christian? No, that's ludicrous, right? So now you have to answer the sense of how do we do politics in a sinful world with the exigencies of politics, of having to keep secrets, of having to do spying, and then, of course, um, having to do propaganda. Um, and, and so all of these things then come into play. And you basically then have to recognize that you want to get that you're going to need to get your hand. And this is maybe perhaps the biggest argument against democracy that, mm. you know, if, if you reserve it for a few people, they, of course, gain certain rewards that come with power. But they also have you only have a handful or a small group of people who then become corrupt by power as well, too. Yeah, this is a really interesting. And of course, this is this is Carl Schmidt's point about the total state is that. Once the once the political once the you know once there and and of course Curtis Yarvin talks about this a lot too. Once you have this free uh, political energy out there, once there's power up for grabs, the society is going to be compelled to capture it, consume it, and so when everyone has a role to play inside the political, then the propaganda has to be thrown. It has to it has to go through every part of the society. It has to infiltrate every social sphere. They all have to be collapsed. They all have to be subsumed under the state because it's the only state the way that the state can recapture sovereignty. As where, you know, I think everyone prior to a modern understanding of politics, 
everyone understood that there that of course the king and 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 uh, you know uh, nobles people with high political functions they of course had high, uh, lots of privileges but they also incurred a large degree of moral weight for what they were doing the, the politics warfare these were there's always dirty business and they were always going to carry a, a lot of uh negativity around and, and moral weight around the actions that had to be taken and so that's why that those functions were kind of kept in they were hemmed into a specific person or set of people because they weren't supposed to be spread throughout the entire society not everyone was supposed to have to deal with that on an individual level but when you disperse that you know that uh, that authority you also disperse that responsibility and you disperse that need to dirty yourself with these actions and so instead of having you know kings and a, and a few advisors and, and and maybe soldiers and such making these morally gray questions uh, and decisions you now have to force that decision onto every individual when you involve them in the political well and and there there's another piece to it you're absolutely right or the, the other piece is is also the technological right so mm-hmm. what does technology do it allows in technological systems it allows us to harness power for the generation of money and so forth, but allows us to do it at scale. So, you know, with every level of technological advancement, so to speak, and especially once you get into the managerial state, this really allows you to to capture and wield power on a global scale. Because when you're down in the in the the realm of a small community, yeah, there's power dynamics or whatever, but the scale of a small community never allows the abuses to accumulate to um, beyond a certain interpersonal level. Um, and they are there. Um, but once you begin to scale up to the level of you know multiple villages, the king and so forth, then all of these weights of power and so forth also come along with it, right? The, 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 both the, the benefits, but then also the abuses. And then if you spread it across the whole of society, as you say, now you involve everybody. The whole of society has to be propagandized because we're living in this global technological state um, that's being administered by, you know, through technique and whatever, through the this, you know, business and government or whatever are administering the state. And so this propaganda, the the whole power thing, it all has to be include everybody in it. Um, mm-hmm. And unless you break the whole thing up. Um, you, the only real way to approach it is that as long as the, the modern state remains at the scale that it does, um, conservatives and Christians are going to have to embrace the idea that political realities have to be dealt with at that scale. It also is the, the, the scale and the technology is also what creates this possibility of hyperagents, right? Where we have people compelled by these messages, these narratives, these ideologies that are so completely disembodied from their well-being, their day-to-day lives, their communities, that they take them to very radical extremes. And I think that's why the narratives become more and more schizophrenic as we approach these, these vast scales, because they're so completely disconnected from anything that would serve a natural human community, a natural human idea of the good or well-being. And I think that's why it becomes uh, more and more how do you say morally dicey for people it becomes harder and engaging because the stories are so far removed from what we would recognize as the good or the true that it becomes more and more difficult to engage them without feeling like you're completely disembodied from these things 
Well, and this is in a sense, the reality of, of, you know, the technological world in the sense of, you know, the, the professional managerial class who, who, whose lines are dealt in abstractions, right? So you flip around to the other side, who are the other people? Well, they're, church communities ground in real, you know, that, that are ground in real relationships in real life. But they also have groups like the trades who deal in physical realities. Ask yourself, why were truckers the ones that revolted in Canada? Mm. Well, because truckers are connected with real reality, right? They're the, the business that they, that they are engaged in of moving physical goods around right, is not an abstract business. It deals with physical reality. So those physical realities then ground you in a way that the abstract realities don't. So this idea that you can change genders and all these kind of things to somebody who's grounded in physical reality, it just seems ludicrous, right? But once, as you say, you've been disembodied and, and now you live in this digital realm and you're completely deracinated in a sense that you've lost all touch with reality. Well, if technology can allow you to change your physical nature into some sort of, you know, recreated cyborg, why wouldn't you do it? Because that's sort of, you know, reality is completely fungible at that point. Absolutely. All right. So I think we need to go ahead and wrap this up, but what then I guess we've, we've touched on most of how, or, you know, I think the answer is you will be compelled to use it. it. You know, propaganda is just a reality of kind of political warfare at this point. And if you're not going to completely abandon the battlefield to your enemy, then you're going to have to be engaged about it. Are there any parting thoughts that you'd like to, you know, leave people with when it comes to the proper use deployment or way to think about propaganda, since you know, it's a known quantity, it's going to have to exist inside the political. Well, as we said, one of the, the first ways I think is protecting yourself, right? So um, you and I are very aware of this. Um, uh, as little as possible, try to not pay attention to the news, which is really hard to do when you're on Twitter, um, but it can be done, right? So if you're always reacting to the latest thing, um, you are basically ripe for manipulation by the, the propagandist. If you're always reacting to the, so stop reacting to the latest things unplug yourself and try to relate to real ideas um, that are bigger than the, the latest thing, but also then engage in real life. So get, be involved in a community, go to church, you know what I mean? Um, that type of thing. Um, but then the other thing is to begin to ask yourself um, and say, okay, so let's say you've decided that you, you know, somebody like myself who decided I need to engage the narrative battle is stop reacting and really think to yourself, what can I do to dictate the narrative? And so that's in a sense of, of is having a picture. And this is where I, in the piece, I use the idea of the roadmap, right? So what you're trying to do is to create a roadmap into the sense of, do you know where you're going? Or are you just reacting to what's out there? Because if you're just reacting, you're just part of the problem, right? But you have to, in a sense, have a map of where are we going? And so part of what we can do maybe as propagandists, but on the right, is to provide people with a map, a narrative that allows them to get where they're going, right? And okay, yeah, it's a form of propaganda, but so we propagandize our own first, so they have a map, but then once we have that map, we can then use that map to dictate the terms of the discussion, right? Choose the elements of reality that we decide to elevate, and then 
um, frame them in the way that we that we frame them to move people where we believe earnestly they need to go in that regard. And so that's always a sense of what are we trying to build? Um, and this is why like people sort of, I think, begin the wrong way. They say, well, we need to build a political coalition first. I'm like, no, before you start trying to build a co political coalition, you need to know where you're going. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know where you're going, you're basically at the mercy of, of whoever is going to spin you a narrative. So yeah. that's that sense of you have to have a really very clear vision of where are we going? And then how do we provide a map to help people get to where we're going? And I think that's so important because if you look at the failed movements of the right in, in America, if you look at, you know, the, the Tea Party or MAGA, all both of them were reactions to, you know, the, the way that the Republican Party or the or the conservative mainstream was handling things. They had specific issues. They had um, often powerful grievances but they had no collective vision of where to go. And so they were co-opted easily, not because they didn't have legitimate differences or, or an idea of, of kind of what they were struggling against, but they had no way to inform what their vision would be next. They had no way to know where they were going. They had no way to kind of uh, communicate that and, you know, counter propagandize and so whatever wanted to step in and fill that angst and direct that angst ended up owning it because it because it never it never owned itself it was simply it was simply a burst of energy that had no direction that had no no way to fill that and so i think that's why the efforts of someone like rufo are so important i think more people need to grasp that is if you want to, if you want those things to last beyond the you know the those short bursts of uh, disgruntled uh, you know, anger or, or uh, political motivation, you need to have, uh, like you said, a, not just a coalition, but a place for it to go, a direction it's going to go and a way in which you can communicate that message and, and control and protect that movement from the propaganda that's going to flow in and try to control that energy and capture it once it's out there. Uh, well, but and, we, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I was going to say the, the, the one thing that you have to, people have to understand is the left knows where it's going. Mm-hmm. And 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 the like the Republican Party looks so ineffectual because they they don't know where they're going and all they're trying to do is basically um, give payback to their donors, right? And so they have no idea. So they're just getting power for the sake of power. And so they have no idea where they're going. Like they no vision whatsoever. Um, but the left knows very clearly where it's going. So until the right can know where it's going, it will remain on the outside. Excellent. All right. Well, we're going to move to the questions of the people. But before we do, can you tell everyone where to find your work? Okay. So there it's um, on Twitter, it's at underscore cryptos. And then on Substack, it is seekingthehiddenthing.com, seekingthehiddenthing.com. And that should get you there. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Make sure, like I said, it's one, one of the better uh, up and coming Substacks uh, delving into some important thinkers so make sure that you check it out all right so Cooper weirdo here for twenty dollars thank you very much sir i hate listening to normie cons talk about art movies comics video games it's all consumers unwilling to allow their ideas in art so we know uh so we know uh so we know our ideas are better but i don't express them are right-wing ideas allowed or not yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's it's difficult because it's a lot easier to, of course, make content reacting to popular things than to make your thing popular. I mean, let's be honest. 
I could do movie reviews and talk about like the problem of wokeness in whatever Disney film that just came out. And I'm not above. I've talked about, you know, some mainstream entertainment and I might do more, but that would, that would be a a far more dynamic thing. You'd get way more views, way more traffic, that kind of thing. So the, the, the pull, because as we've talked about, cryptos has talked about here, the pull is of course, stepping into the frame. That's where uh, that has already been set for you. That's where the eyeballs are. That's where the attention is. That's where the algorithms go. And so it's, yes, it's consumerist, but more importantly, it's what drives the uh, attention and the attention economy is, is a big part of why that focus is there. It's a lot harder to a make good art, but even B, if you make the good art, then you've got to get eyeballs on it. And that that's very difficult. So I think that for a lot of people, um, you know, it, it's just a lot easier to chase the commentary on current mainstream art and its failings rather than try to go out there and make that. And I'm not an artist. I'm not creative in that way. So I don't blame people for that because it is incredibly difficult. Uh, but that is something that is going to be necessary if you're going to win a culture war of any. Then we have Creeper Weirdo here again for $5. I also think that the uh, dissident right work too hard to have based interpretations of uh, liberal art. <laughs> it feels like cope. Uh, again, yeah, I can connect to the same thing. I think that it's, there's just a much more, uh, it's much easier to look into the art that's being creative and find alternative readings. People enjoy that. They enjoy seeing, oh, here's here's why this content is actually secretly based as opposed to uh, going out and making your own thing. Though I do, I would say there is value. And I think I do, I find these uh, videos or the, this kind of analysis entertaining. I do think it's interesting that so often the left, which has just excised the idea that anything right wing can be positive, often still makes things that portray truths that they wish they they didn't portray. And I think there is value in pointing that out, mining that out. Yeah, sometimes it is just like, oh, the villains are always right. I think that is a shallow narrative that sometimes right wing people do. But I do think there is valuable work in mining truths that are unavoidable, even in the worst uh, left wing art, because I think the the inescapability of those truths is something that teaches people, uh, you know, that that there is there's something other than this just constant progressive propaganda that is true. Uh, And I think that's pretty valuable. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. But once again, thank you, everybody, for coming by. I want to thank Kryptos for coming on. Make sure that you are reading his piece. The original one on propaganda is very good. Make sure that you go check out his Substack. Of course, if this is your first time on the channel, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you're going to the Aura McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. And if you do that, leave a rating or review it really helps with the algorithm thank you guys once again and as always i will talk to you next time